Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Galatians chapter 2. We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Yeah, so when Danny and Trevor uh, asked me if I'd be willing to come and speak, I, I actually, I, I remember it differently. I said, I'll only come and speak if you give me the best passage, <laughs> and I will settle for nothing, nothing else, nothing less. I need the pivotal, the turning point, the memory verse section. Either that or I walk. I'm out of here. No, so... Anyway, as you heard, maybe some of you, um, along with me, found yourself kind of mouthing along to some of those uh, words and sentences. If you've been around uh, Christianity or the church for a while, uh, there's some familiar concepts and verses in there. And for others of you, you're hearing this for the first time. What an exciting, I'm so glad you're here to understand and to discover some of the deep, life-changing realities that are present in these six short verses. So it's with fear and trembling that I come before this passage. Uh, with that in mind, let's very briefly pray, and then we'll get to work. Lord, uh, we've loved the chance to uh, sing together. Um, I love the way that our different accents and histories and stories, uh, when we sing together, they all come as one united voice. Uh, we're all so different with different experiences. Uh, but yet, in worship, we are able to come together in a, in a unified way to you, you who know each and every one. Lord, as we consider what Paul had to say to this ancient church, I pray that its contemporary significance can be just laid into our laps and applied into our hearts. As Psalm 19 says, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I really have three questions that I want to, I want us to ask of the passage. And, uh, and there's a list of these three questions. Oh, it's already there. Oops. I bumped the button. I will no longer touch it. I messed it up. Miss Ruth, you know what to do. <laughs> Can we go to the three, the three again? These are the three questions that we should ask about this important set of paragraphs. Where's the gospel in this passage? Number one, where's the problem in this passage? And then what's the remedy 
in this passage. And to ask that first question, number one, what is the gospel in this passage? Well, Danny did a great job last Sunday explaining how there was like this awkward first century church potluck where one apostle confronted another apostle in public over his behavior. He said, you're misrepresenting the gospel. Or in verse 14, it says, your behavior is out of step or out of line with the truth of the gospel. He's not telling him that the content of your teaching is off. He's saying the way you're behaving is wrong. The reason why is because, well, Peter is a pretty influential guy in the early church. And what he said and also what he does, it matters. And it carries a lot of weight and it carries a lot of influence. But sadly, at a few crucial moments of the Apostle Peter's life, that influential man became an influenced man. The opinion of other people loomed rather large in Peter's mind on a few important occasions. Sometimes Peter would adapt to go along with would ruffle the least amount of feathers. And we do that too. It's a human trait. Or I do that, I'll say. Maybe you do as well. Uh, Sue Le Boutelier was commenting on the life of Peter And she noticed that in the courtyard of Caiaphas, Peter gave in to peer pressure. And Peter modified a deeply held personal conviction in his words. He contradicted with his words what he believed about Jesus. And and then she points out that years later in Galatia, he gives in to peer pressure again. And he modifies his deeply held personal conviction, not in his words, but in his actions. Uh, She says that weaknesses in our lives carve deep ruts, and they're formed by years of thinking the same thoughts and taking the same action. And so Peter just kind of goes with the flow and follows along some influential voices, maybe in something that in both instances— he knew wasn't right, but with his words or with his actions, he just goes with the flow. And again, I don't want to rehash too much of what Danny talked about last Sunday, but there was influential, this group of people with the nickname of the Judaizers who wanted to bring in adherence and observance to certain aspects of the Old Testament law for new covenant believers. In the book of Jude, chapter 4, it speaks about kind of a different group of false teachers and how they have crept in unaware to Christian congregations and begin to influence them. You guys know what it's like to creep in unaware, right? Like a giant weather balloon with like a bus underneath, like taking videos of everything. It just kind of creeps in unaware. And the Apostle Paul says, you know what? Somebody's got to shoot this thing down. (laughs) And so... In verses 14, 15, 16, he is taking aim and saying, nope, we cannot allow this influence to continue. 
Paul says to Peter, hey, Peter, you are excluding certain people from your table fellowship. You are eating with some people in private, but refusing to eat with them in public. You are extending the right hand of fellowship only to the certain kinds of people in public, but you're embarrassed to be associated with them in private, or actually vice versa, the opposite. Maybe in contemporary worlds, we'd say, well, I'll let you take a selfie with me, but don't tag me in it. Or, or, or yeah, don't post this. We're friends, but I don't want other people to know about our association. Paul says that cannot fly in the Church of Christ. And like I said, this kind of leads into one of the most tense and the most dramatic episodes in the post-Gospels New Testament. Two apostles of Christ are face-to-face, and they're in conflict Paul says that your hypocrisy in this is too important to remain unaccountable because other people are noticing and other people are following along with it. Even Barnabas seems to be okay with it. And Paul realizes, nope, I got to be the one who says something. I need to be the one at Christmas dinner who asks an awkward question or who gives an awkward answer. And Paul confronts him to the face. And again, This is all covered last week, but it seems as if the content of verses 15 just flows directly into verses 15, 16, and 17. So, of course, I have to back up just a little bit to say this is the context, and it seems as if Paul is continuing to speak to Peter in verse 15 when he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, but yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So this is the error of legalism. And you've heard this word already, even today. And it certainly has been a frequent theme over these past weeks. It's those that want to add a list of shoulds and oughts and mustn'ts and additional rules onto the finished work of Jesus Christ. Religious rules that are not in the Bible being forced upon the consciences of other Christians. And this series is entitled The Gospel of Grace, and it's to to free ourselves from the external and the internal legalists that are there. Now, in the country that my wife and I have lived for 19 years this coming Wednesday, there's a dominant, notoriously legalistic religious um, religious organization that has heaped pounds and kilograms, and metric tons of legalistic obligations on the backs of the Irish people. And I've seen its damage firsthand, and I've seen well-intentioned men and women who just want to do the right thing and just want to honor God and be told, well, the Bible says this, and also... You need to do this, that, and the other. 
you have rule after rule and obligation or penance or rites or pilgrimages, and the list goes on and on. And it can really get my blood boiling sometimes. But here's the thing. It's not just a Catholic problem. It's a human problem. It's a first century church problem. It's an apostolic problem. It's a St. Peter problem. It's something that we all, and I love how Trevor said it earlier on, we all have an inner legalist who lives inside of us that contradicts the gospel of grace again and again. Surely it can't just be a matter of opening our hands and receiving. Certainly we have to dig into our pockets and offer something in exchange. Surely God doesn't love us as an act of sheer grace There's got to be some way that we earn it or deserve it or merit it or prove that it was a worthy sacrifice. Please don't think that because you go to the right kind of church that you are immune from this. Listen, Peter loved the gospel. Listen, Peter understood the gospel more than you do. And yet, in his conduct in this moment, he failed to live out the implications of it. Listen, Peter had seen the resurrected Christ himself. He had visited the empty tomb. He wrote an epistle or two. And here, he gives into peer pressure, which probably, to some degree, confirmed or affirmed the inner legalist inside of him that said, listen, well, there's two different kinds of Christians. There's the Christians who are really killing it and living up to all the rules, and then there's the ones that aren't. You don't want to be seen in public with those that aren't, do you? Verse 14 says he was not in step with the gospel. And this is one of the reasons why Christian community is so important whether it's this Sunday gathering or whether it's one of the community groups that has been mentioned or the other affinity groups that are available within um, Olive Branch Church, we need to invite and to create and to sustain opportunities for healthy Christian conflict. I had to force myself to smile while I said that because I also hate healthy Christian conflict, to be honest. But, But here we have People who love each other, who are deeply on the same team. And one of them needs to call the other to account. Back to the purity of the gospel message. So I mentioned gospel message, and this section is, where is the gospel in this passage? Well, I think we could find it in verse 16. We know a person is not justified by works of the law. They're not made right in God's eyes by what they do. Okay, well, Paul, how do we do that? But through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16. We might call this doctrine uh, justification by faith alone. If you want to hear it in Latin, it's sola fide. Faith alone in Christ alone brings us, ushers us into a healthy relationship with God. Justification by faith is not just the gateway in which we enter into the Christian walk but it also is the pathway for mature believers to walk with Christ and to walk with another. 
Let me, let me quote Danny one last time, all right? Danny said last week that this is not just for the Sunday school kids over there. This is not just the ABCs or the beginning of the Christian message. It's the A to Z. It's everything in between. So it's by faith alone and Christ alone that brings us into the Christian faith. And also that is what maintains us in the faith as well. And that's good news because the works of the law are ceaseless and unending. Now, here, they seem to specifically be talking about the, the rituals and the regulations of the Old Testament Torah, the dietary restrictions, the circumcision standards, and all those kind of things. But I think that in addition to that, the contemporary application is there are so many of our own made-up laws about how good Christians should dress, or how a good Christian should, should parent, or whether you should be married young, or whether you should postpone it to a later time, how and when we tithe, or if we recycle, or should we care about managing our carbon footprint, or should we have our pronouns in our bios, should we wear masks, or should we not? It's exhausting to try to figure out what's the right thing to do. And let me just put it a little bit crassly, to impress each other, right? And we can't even impress each other by doing all the right things in all the right ways at all the right times. Who invented the idea that we could somehow impress the Lord of heaven and earth with our good works? Hey, God, I came to church on Sunday. Are you impressed? Hey, Lord, I gave 10% of my income to you. If we can't impress each other, what do you think we, how do we think we can impress God with our efforts or offerings? I'm talking to the, the believers in this room, which might be all of us, or, or it may not be. But for those of you that know the Lord Jesus Christ, we've given up on ourselves, finally. We've found relief in saying, I cannot do it, but I know someone who has. We look to someone outside of ourselves, and it allows us to sigh a breath of relief. George Whitfield, commenting on this uh, evangelist from the 18th century, says, what? Get to heaven on your own strength? You might as well try to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. I didn't know he was so funny, but <laughs> I just think that's such a great image, climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. Here's how the, the Heidelberg Catechism uh, speaks about this question. How are we right with God? Is it based on our doing, earning, or deserving, or is it something else? It's a long quote. How are we right before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, having never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had committed 
never, if I had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience that Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. It's long, but it's worth reading. <laughs> it's really true. Let's put this in a different way. Uh, yesterday, we, we spent time with uh, you know, some of the kids' grandparents, and uh, they got their belated uh, Christmas gifts. And their Christmas gifts fit in my pocket. You ever seen one of these bad boys? They're called an Amazon gift card. Grandparents, they are the easiest gift in the world to give and to receive. These Amazon gift cards have money from somebody else's account, and they're just waiting in here. And my kids get to pick what they want on Amazon.com, supporting this uh, small but Seattle-based, uh, <laughs> no, but the ethics of that or whatever. But, um, but, but on this is the income from somebody else transferred into this card, which is for the benefit of my kids. This is a poor example to compare with the mighty Heidelberg Catechism, but also a little bit more concrete. They get to use this as if it's their own, although the money was earned by somebody else. Justification is the righteousness of Christ is transferred into our account and we are granted access to where we otherwise would not have been because of a righteousness that's credited to the discredited like you and I. What's the gospel? That's the gospel. What's the problem in this passage? Well, the problem in this passage is that the way that Peter was acting in regards to who he would or wouldn't eat with or who he would or wouldn't be spotted in public with is contradicting that type of generosity from the heart of God. From heaven below, this open-hearted generosity is being squelched, sullied, slowed by Peter's prejudices. So we have the account of the first century church potluck gone bad. And then in verse 21, it says, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The way that Peter was acting regarding certain people in the church were saying that you're not as justified or not as deserving as other people. Uh, Paul says that if such a thing were possible, if there, there was certain scale of righteousness based on earning or deserving, well, then Christ's death was in vain, purposeless. It's a horrible thing to say that a, a person's death served no purpose. We talk about a, a preventable tragedy or a senseless death. Uh, Paul says, like, imagine the thought of Christ dying for no purpose. And did Christ die in vain? Paul would say, hardly. Christ died to give equal access to all who would call upon him in faith. Peter, as I mentioned, Peter believed all of that. Peter was upholding the doctrine, but he was deconstructing the culture. 
He was benefiting personally from the grace of Christ, but yet in his actions, he was withholding it from a group that he would rather not see. He was orthodox on paper, but he was legalistic in practice. Or to put it another way, borrowing the language from Dr. Ray Ortland, he says gospel doctrine should lead to gospel culture. I was at the Calvary Global Network uh, Pastors and Leaders Conference last summer, spending time with Trevor and Danny and Olivia. We were there together. And that was kind of the main theme of the whole conference. And it kind of takes like a whole week to unpack all of the implications of this. And Galatians chapter 2 featured really heavily in a lot of the teachings Because this is an example of Peter believing the right things with his words and in his mind, but in the way that he's treating other people, he's undoing the good doctrine. Turns out, the way that Olive Branch Church treats one another actually upholds what's taught from the pulpit or written in the the statement of faith or contradicts it and drags it down and causes it to implode on in itself. As I was looking up last night um, what time the service starts, so I was uh, Googling Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Poway, (laughs) Uh, guess what showed up? A Yelp review of your church. (laughs) And I read it, and it said that the greeting time was wonderful, where people were embracing and hugging and laughing and catching up and that there was a care from those who were 14 years old all the way to those who were 94 years old and saying that the way that people treated one another was a glimpse into the fact that they must really believe this stuff up there and then goes on in that same Yelp review to then to then talk about the value of community groups guys I was not asked to promote community groups so much. I just can't help it. But speaking about the importance of spending time with with people who are widowers or widows and young families and how it's a place to hold one another accountable to live out the truths that they believe together. And, And so I just can't help but mention that and even just say how the way that we treat one another upholds and solidifies the truth that we believe or contradicts it and actually proves that deep down we don't believe it. So if our church isn't showing the gospel in our culture, it doesn't matter what we say in our pulpit or what's in our statement of faith. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, Jesus like has some final words for some churches. Uh, he speaks to the church of Ephesus, and he tells them that You believe all the right things. Your doctrine is spot on. He's like, you've tested those who say that they're apostles, and you've proven them false. You have this. You're a busy church. You're doing a lot of things. But he says, but I have this against you. You've left your first love, which is probably loving God and also loving each other. And he says, if you guys don't fix this, he's like, I'm going to come down, and I'm going to extinguish your lampstand. Do you know what that means? He's like, I'm going to come down there. I'm going to shut your church down. Because even though the city of Ephesus needed Christian witness, Jesus says, you're doing it all wrong. 
having all the right doctrines, all the right beliefs, but operating out of love for God and love for each other, he's like, you're actually doing more harm than good. You're inoculating the community against the power of the gospel by saying the right words with your mouth, but contradicting it with your lives. I'm going to shut you down if you don't get this fixed. Paul says to Peter, hey, bud, we're friends and all, but like, The way you're acting is contradicting all that you say that you believe. And the churches in Galatia need real Christian witness, not mouth only. So let's cop on, buddy. So the Judaizers are saying there's like a two-tiered system of Christianity, that there's those that have their act together and do the right things, and then there's the rest of us who don't. It's like when you get on an airplane. And they, I don't know why they do this, but they make you walk through first class and business class on the way to, like, the cattle car that that the rest of us go to. And, like, they make you see it. They make you look at the legroom. They make you look at, like, the TVs that are bigger and the headphones that are over ear instead of whatever. And then you have to go sit in yours. And then I heard someone say how, like, and then you take off, and then the stewardess comes out, and the stewardess has that curtain, and then she kind of, like, looks at all of you. And it's like, if you just worked a little bit harder, (laughs) maybe you'd be up here. And then she (laughs) shuts the curtain so that you don't even have to look at them anymore. Anyway, uh, Christianity is not like that. (laughs) Anyway, Paul gets in Peter's face. He believes that a public contradiction of the gospel demands a public confrontation. And it's the, the, the most awkward first century church potluck that ever happened. Lastly, what's the what's the remedy of this passage? We've seen the belief that both Peter and Paul had, the gospel of sheer grace. Then we've seen the problem, which is that Peter, while he said it with his mouth, was ceasing to enact it with his life. Well, what's, what's some of the ways we can get out of this? Because, again, it's not just an ancient problem. It's contemporary as well. Well, when faced with this conundrum about Christians living up to external standards of the law, Like, what Paul doesn't say is, like, all right, guys, let's pull up our bootstraps. Let's get our work gloves on. Let's start trying harder, okay? He doesn't say that. Like, in verses 19 and 20 and onwards, uh, he says, well, the law does serve a purpose. So let's let the law do what it was made to do, and let's not try to use it for something else. What was the law made to do? The law was made to show us our undeniable and inescapable need for an external rescuer. So he's like, so let's let it do that. In, in verse 19, he says, like, my relationship with the law has changed so much that it's like I only have to use the language of death to describe the way that I relate to the law. And, and death is so final, isn't it? Uh, maybe you've experience the loss of someone close to you, and, and it takes such a long time to even process it. Maybe you've experienced where you, you think you see someone in a crowd, but then you realize, no, it's, it's not them, and then you remind yourself, oh yeah, that person is, is no longer with us. It's like this severing, it's this, it's this amputation. And he says, well, the way that I relate to the, the law, the concept of, of doing or achieving or earning, he's like, that's dead to me. Or, or in other words, I'm dead to it. It's done its job. It has killed me. Now, I don't know how many middle-aged punk rockers are here in the room, but maybe 
you're familiar with this band called The Clash. And what's, what's their song that might summarize Paul's relationship with the Mosaic Law in Galatians 2.19? I fought the law and the law won. All right, note to self. That reference does not work. <laughs> Zach, I was really counting on I was really counting on you, buddy. <laughs> I fought the law and the law won. He's like, the law killed me. And 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 you know what? And it, it that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to release you from all expectations of a performance-based relationship. I'm dead. I need someone who's been dead and alive before, who could raise me to life once again. The law is great at what it is supposed to do. It's supposed to show you your need for God. The law is terrible at what we wish it could do, which is to be some kind of a scoreboard to rate whether you're the good kind of Christian or the lame kind of Christian. That is misusing it. It's like using a hammer for a toothbrush or a toothbrush for a hammer. They have purposes, and you're not supposed to mix them up. Allow me to quote from John Bunyan. He says this in poetic language. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. A rigid matter was the law, demanding brick while denying straw. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Powerful. I got goosebumps even even right now. Bricks without straw is one thing, but being granted wings and then asked to fly is another. I've died to the law, he says. And then he says there's been another death. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. This idea of like being co-crucified with Christ, what, what a concept, what a notion. Now, Trevor mentioned that I'm part of a preacher's training initiative, and so we do like these workshops, and also there's a podcast that I do, and what I say to preachers all the time is like, don't mess up a message by using unnecessary Greek and Hebrew terminology. Nobody cares. (laughs) This is necessary. (laughs) When I do it, it's okay. (laughs) No, there's a, there's a, it's called the Greek perfect tense to describe his crucifixion with Christ. Uh, This means that it's a a past event with ongoing um, current implications. I have been crucified with Christ, and this is phrased in a way that's like, and this reality continues on until today. It's not ancient history, but I continue to be crucified with Christ. This this shapes not just my relationship with the law there and then, but my relationship with the world here and now. I'm crucified with Christ. A.W. Tozer says there's three marks of one who's crucified. One, he is facing only one direction. Two, he can never turn back. 
And three, he no longer has plans of his own. So the law is like an assassin. It kills us. The law is like a hitman. And he always finds his bounty. But the gospel preached to us is like a, like a midwife or like, like a delivery room doctor who, who brings life to us. So there's the work of the hitman, destroying any hope of self-reliance or self-justification. And then the midwife who brings life. And so Paul has this relationship with the law and this relationship with the gospel. He says that Christ is the one that he died with, but it says, I, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Didn't we sing it together at the beginning of service? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and I marvel how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And here we have in verse 20, the loving and dying Savior. And my friends, the law does not love you, and the law did not die for you. But I know one who did. The Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. And you know, we're told, jumping back to verse 16, like, we're justified by, by faith in Christ. Let's not get that backward. It's not like Christ is watching us and he has faith in you that you'll do the right thing. If it's Christ who has faith in us, like, sorry, Jesus. <laughs> um, but if it's we who have faith in Christ, that is our hope because he's the one who loves us, who gave himself for us. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.